This is the Retail Politics Podcast. Here we strive to give you the best political information about your nation. One download at a time. Here's your host, former congressional correspondent and award-winning reporter, Jerry Shields. Thank you, Dave, and thank you, listeners, for spending 30 minutes of your precious time joining us here on the Retail Politics Podcast, where we bring you the issues confronting America today. Today, we are going to talk about the chaplains in Congress with Howard Bortman, the author of When Rabbis Bless Congress, a very fascinating book because it gets into the issue of chaplains in Congress, which uh, I don't think a whole lot of people know about. So welcome, Howard. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for uh, for having me here. I really appreciate it. Not at all. Um, so tell me how this idea came about for you. Sure. Um, so you're right. It's kind of an unprecedented look. Uh, first time ever look at at the tradition of of uh, chaplains in prayer opening each session of Congress. And what the, the genesis, uh, to use that word, of the story is I work, uh, my, thank you, my, uh, I've never used it before, my, my, my day job, I work for C-SPAN, which is the cable network that covers Congress, um, the House and the Senate, and I'm the, I'm the uh, communications director, essentially the, the PR guy for, for C-SPAN. Um, as a result of that, I watch a lot of Congress, uh, for, for better or for worse, and, you know, so I, uh, I, you know, we show gavel-to-gavel coverage. One thing that Congress does every day that it just intrigued me, just as a, as a curiosity, the very first thing Congress does, both chambers, is open with a prayer, um, open with the, the chaplain, uh, the official chaplain, or in some cases, a guest chaplain. And it looks like nothing else that happens during the day. There's no acrimony. There's no hatred. There's no debate. There's no votes. It's just a straightforward uh, person of the cloth uh, delivering a message for God, basically. And I just was intrigued just as a curiosity, that tradition. They do it before there's a Pledge of Allegiance, in fact. I mean, literally, is the very first thing. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, and it goes back to the very beginning of Congress. It says a lot. And so I just, you know, go along watching it, uh, intrigued. Every so often, and we can get into this, but every so often there is a guest chaplain, and that's the the man or the woman of cloth who uh, fills in with the official chaplain for whatever reason is not there delivering the prayer. And that, that intrigued me as well. And then... On the even rarer occasions, there's a rabbi who does the prayer. Uh, I'm Jewish, and so I just kind of perked up a little bit more when that happens, and that's basically where the story begins. So um, one of the things that you did in this book that was great was that you just didn't talk about rabbis. You talked about the history of chaplains in Congress. Tell us when it began, how it began. Sure, and I really appreciate you picking up on that. Um, the entry point for this book are the rabbis who have prayed, but it's the story is much bigger, much grander than that, because, as you point out, this begins at the very beginning of Congress. Uh, and actually, even before there's a Bill of Rights, uh, Congress uh, appoints uh, a chaplain uh, to begin a prayer. And even before Congress, during the Continental Congress, the very first thing they did was pray. So this is a tradition that goes back to the very beginning. Uh, and it, again, it, it's every single day. So over you know the, over the 200 or so year more than 200 years of Congress, there's been a heck of a lot of prayers uh, delivered. Um, so this is a very much this is not a Jewish story. Uh, this is a congressional history story, um, and it just and, and it, these prayers from the very beginning just are very much swept up in history. Uh, this is what they do. So tell me, I mean, we always get into that argument of church and state and should we mix church and state, but there seems to be no qualms about doing that. Has there been blowback at all about this uh, about this tradition? 
It's a what a great question because uh, yes, there are there have been there have been challenges to the tradition in Congress. Um, every challenge has been withheld has been uh, uh, the, the tradition has been upheld by the Supreme Court um, uh, and not only in Congress but for prayer beginning uh, locally in um, you know local city councils uh, local legislatures. The tradition itself is supported by the Congress now. I'm sorry, by the Supreme Court. Now, I want to point out that my book, uh, I don't take a position on church state. Uh, every time I talk about this, and, and it's an inevitable question of, <laughs> I, 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 I had no idea Congress does this, mm-hmm. and why does it do it, and and are you allowed to do that? Um, so going backwards, yes, you're allowed to do that. Um, my book, what I, the point of view I take is that. You know, you can have the argument over church state, uh, but the, if you do that and if you don't like the practice, if you say, con- you know, you shouldn't be doing that, which is a legitimate position, what I found just you ignore just so much rich history of, of uh, men and women who have given prayers. Um, so my approach is, you know, I let others debate whether or not they should do it. Um, mm-hmm. I just take as an amateur historian, I take the position, well, let's investigate the people who have done it. Um, now, I will point out that, you know, it's not just uh, rabbis and it's not just Christians, but, you know, uh, Muslims have prayed and Hindu and, and so on. So it actually, to me, it speaks to America's strength of diversity of religion. And, you know, if when you talk about like things like the Establishment Clause, if there ever was evidence that there is no established religion in America, it's the fact that for at least rabbis, there have been over 400 rabbis who prayed in Congress. So, hmm. you know, it's very much evidence that there is no established religion in America. That's fascinating. And this is an exhaustive book. I mean, when I started reading, I said it was just rich, rich, rich with history and documentation. How long did it take you to do? From beginning to end, soup to nuts, from the concept to the first book arriving in the box from the publisher, roughly about six and a half years. Wow. Um, and that, that involved researching. Now, I was... When I set out to do this, the um, there, what I what I, what I was able to do at the very beginning is use the video that uh, on the C-SPAN archives, um, mm-hmm. uh, but that only goes back to '79 when Congress begins. Uh, you have to go. Uh, I'm sorry, when C-SPAN begins um, in '79, you have to go back a lot further. And what the big obstacle was, there was no real way to look through congressional records. Because uh, you can't do this research without the congressional records. They were not online. They were not searchable when I began. It was all anecdotal. Mm-hmm. Now, I was fortunate during the production, the research of this, that the congressional record went online and Library of Congress now is all searchable going back to the to the 19th century, which is a big help. Um, but, you know, no one be, because no one has done this before, the research was exhilarating. It was mm-hmm. fun, but it was mm-hmm. also frightening because... I have to get it right. You know, there's mm-hmm. no way to fact check mm-hmm. this against anybody else doing this. So it was neat to be a pioneer, but it was also in many ways really daunting. Uh, yeah, very challenging, right. very, very yeah. challenging because you're right. You're dealing with Congress. You're dealing with the accurate, you know, <laughs> the accurate record. So you were talking about, you did focus on some of the, the rabbis and, and their role in it. So um, tell us a little bit about that. Lincoln was very instrumental in that happening, wasn't he? Yeah, totally. Um, the, the fact, the, uh, believe it or not, the first the first rabbi who prayed it. So going back just a step earlier, the tradition of guest chaplain. So again, uh, there's the official chaplain in Congress. And then when that person is not there, a, uh, for whatever reason, uh, a guest chaplain fills in. That tradition really began in the 1850s um, mm-hmm. of a guest 
uh, chaplain giving the prayer. And the first rabbi was in 1860. And actually, uh, Lincoln wasn't even president yet. It was James Buchanan uh, was president. And the first rabbi was a rabbi, Morris Raphael. And his prayer, uh, you can just, what I love about this project and about the history is you can just feel from his prayer, the looming civil mm-hmm. war, because he mm-hmm. talks about brother against brother. And mm. uh, it's just very steeped in that kind of language. Um, uh, so it actually predates Lincoln just by a couple months. Um, but Lincoln was was instrumental in allowing uh, getting Jews as part of uh, rabbis as part of the military chaplains. And that becomes part of the story as well. Um, but the tradition itself goes back, you know, 150 years of, uh, of guest chaplains in Congress. And what was Lincoln's interest in it, in a sense? Like, I mean, what was his, I mean, it sounded like he, he actually took some direct action to have this happen. Why do you think he did that? You know, I, I think it was, you know, I'll leave that to the Lincoln historians. Why? But I, but, uh, you know, there was so much change going on, um, it's funny, the first rabbi, this is kind of counterintuitive for history, but the first rabbi who prayed, Rabbi Morris Raphael, was actually pro-slavery, um, believe it or not, and steeped and uh, connected uh, being pro-slavery with, with the Bible. And mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's the, the politics is so weird now you look back at it now. But, um, you know, for Lincoln, you know, so much, there have been a lot of rabbis who cited uh, Lincoln in their prayers. They've cited uh, George Washington. Uh, some have cited Patrick Henry, but, you know, I, I think there's just a fundamental connection. And there have been books about Lincoln and the Jews. They're just a, basically at the core, a fundamental belief that Lincoln is a freer of mm-hmm. of slaves, you know, connected mm-hmm. to the Moses tradition. So in that way, the lineage is there of Moses helping free slaves, Lincoln free slaves, you know, more contemporary times. So wow, that's I think a cool just, connection. That's a real yeah. cool connection. Yeah. So when you were talking about that prayer in the 1860s under Buchanan and the brother versus brother, I would imagine you could probably track historical events through the prayers. I'm sure after 911, there was a special, you know, prayer that kind of rings out. Totally. And I love that question because these prayers, and again, I focus on rabbis, but but it's broader than that. The prayers in Congress reflect their times. So yes, after 9-11, many of the prayers that I studied uh, that are in the book uh, uh, all hit on the theme of terrorism, uh, uh, of, um, of fighting back against terrorism, but also America coming together. Uh, it was a very, these are very unified, we are going to overcome uh, the bad people, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's very unifying, you know, and you get caught up in the sweep of history during the Vietnam War. Uh, mm-hmm. There are a lot of rabbis who prayed and and you can almost see the the uh, just how the mood changes in America, the early 1960s and the mid 1960s. A lot of the prayers are very, very um, uh, strong on the military. Our boys overseas fighting against communism and we pray for them. But then as the national mood swings against the Vietnam War, so too does the language. And it becomes Very more, you need to bring everybody home and focus on the issues. <laughs> Very interesting, yeah. yes. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, you were, one of the things that also caught my eye was that it was the first woman rabbi was in, I think, 1973. Is that right? And it took about a century, you know, since the first rabbi. And talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I love that. And this is such cool history because the first rabbi woman, uh, her name was Sally Prezand, uh, P-R-I-E-S-A-N-D. Now, it's so interesting you mentioned that it took 100 years for the first woman uh, rabbi, guest chaplain, because it took a long time for there to be any woman rabbi at all. And um, 
uh, and Rabbi Sally Prezian, the first woman rabbi, I guess Chapman was also, believe it or not, the first ordained woman rabbi in America. Um, wow. And wow. so she was, it took a long yeah. time for all this to come together. And mm-hmm. she actually gave the prayer in 1973, um, uh, 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 a year after she became ordained as a rabbi. Now, the history is great here because she uh, is the first woman uh, female rabbi, guest chaplain. Um, um, and she she becomes that at a time of great firsts for women in America, you know, Billie sure. Jean King mm-hmm. and just you know, mm-hmm. the whole, you know, all these mm-hmm. great historic. So she becomes the first. She is, and, and your, your political junkies who are listening here, you will love this. She was sponsored by Bella Abzug. Um, <laughs> and yeah, so, <laughs> which uh, yeah, your listeners will remember, just if yes. you remember her, just very big feminist, wore the big yes. hats. Yeah, definitely a character. Now, it's interesting because in Sally Friesian's prayer, she never mentions the miles stone of her being the first woman but in wow. her uh sponsored by bella abzug bella abzug definitely as the sponsor <laughs> yeah. of her, bella had a parade the marching yeah. band through the middle of the house but one <laughs> exactly. of the one of the things one of the things you also mentioned is one third of the rabbis came from new york is that right yeah they definitely it, it, they came from new york um the, the first rabbi Raphael, was from new york bella uh, uh sally Prezan, sponsored by bella abzug is from new york so it definitely now it's it that's very intuitive that you know that's reflecting the population that a third of the rabbis who prayed in Congress comes from New York because that just, you know, overwhelmingly is where most of the Jews in America uh, have been traditionally located. Not, I mean, obviously it's spread across the country, but it does reflect just the concentration of synagogues and rabbis in New York. Yeah. When, when you were doing this research, Howard, did you see, I mean, there's always been persecutions of different ethnic groups. You know, we had the Irish and, and then the Italians, but the Jews have always been persecuted here. Um, did you see that opening up as time went on? Well, you know, that's really, I have not had that question. That's a really interesting question. Um, well, I, I'll, let me flip that and say one of the, um, one of the inspiring uh, 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 uh themes of this research of the book is to take the persecution and go to the the biggest possible which was the holocaust um right and the uh the, believe it or not there were a large number of jews who of rabbis who fled europe who fled hitler uh mm-hmm. came to america became rabbis and prayed in congress and in fact there there were um i believe by the, my count um six rabbis who survived yeah. auschwitz um right. you have that yep. yeah and came to america so it actually is a is a tribute to america a strength that you can survive the worst possible catastrophe come to america and enjoy your your freedom of religion freedom of speech here uh and pray in the the literal center of democracy and uh, the, the the significance of those survivors, and I did kind of highlight that that there were six that came from Auschwitz, and um, the, the the significance of that when that when that first one came, what what was that what was that feeling like in Congress? Do you think? You know, it's really interesting. The um, um, the uh, the prayers that occurred during the Holocaust didn't really mention it because the 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 um, uh, the, the extent of the devastation wasn't apparent yet, but it was after when the first survivors came. One of the greatest stories is there's a famous, and, and you know, the, I don't want to get too much in the weeds of, of names of rabbis, but there was a really famous rabbi. His name is Leo Beck, uh, spelled B-A-E-C-K. And he's a survivor of uh, one of the camps called Terezin, Theresienstadt. Um, and uh, he uh, survived the Holocaust, came to Amer- America by way of Britain, 
and prayed in Congress uh, in 1948. Um, and he was, and boy, and going back to, we talked about Lincoln earlier, um, his prayer was all about how great Lincoln was and never mentioned the Holocaust in his huh. prayer, even though it was three years after, but only mentioned mm-hmm. how great Lincoln was. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, it's part of the appreciation of uh, like the in-gathering, the in-gathering of immigrants um, and survivors to America. And then he is one example of of uh, survivors of the Holocaust who who in their prayers of self, themselves talk about how great America is and appreciation for the freedom of America. That's neat. You also uh, mentioned in there that there wasn't a whole lot of mention in the prayers about the state of Israel. Why do you think that was? Yeah, I you know, it's so interesting. I set out one of my, just I was curious in the beginning of, uh, you know, our rabbis using this podium, using this pulpit, as it were, to talk about Israel. Um, and uh, a few, I just had a few examples of that. There were more in the early days of Israel, uh, again, connecting, you know, actually, we're talking on today, we're talking to the day that Terry Truman, uh, on this day, 1948, recognized the state of Israel. Uh, so it was like, in those early days, rabbis would invoke and say, you know, Israel is not five years old or 10 years old, 15 years old. That kind of ends. Um, and I think it was, you know, just <clears throat> two reasons. One big picture recognition that this really, it's not really about Israel. And this is not really about the state of Israel or Zionism, these prayers. This is more about, you know, praying to God um, and, you know, a tribute to America and freedom of religion. So that's kind of a loftier um, answer. A more practical answer is the, um, the cha- when guest chaplains pray in Congress for whatever re- religion, they're given a set of instructions. And one of them is to not uh, invoke a foreign country. Um, and mm-hmm. this is more of a, a more contemporary, more modern, uh, modern mm-hmm. day instruction. So they actually, mm-hmm. they're limited in what they can say about a different country. So that's more of a practical answer uh, for that. Um, but that does, you know, just, I think it's just more of uh, just reflecting their times that this is about, America, messages for America and linking to, to God. And one of the things you also noted was that um, one in 10 prayers uh, reflected Isaiah. Why was that? Yeah. So I was really curious um, uh, when the rabbis pray, what are they? So two big buckets, who they are and what they said. Uh, and I was really intrigued by if they invoke scripture, um, uh, the Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew scripture, uh, who were they citing? And so many of them uh, cite prophets. Um, and again, this is not a Jewish thing. You know, the you know, not, uh, Christians in, uh, include the Hebrew scripture in their teachings as well. Um, uh, but I would just, you know, I was curious, well, which prophets do they cite the most? And the most frequently cited prophet, one in 10, is Isaiah. And of his, of what of the Isaiah scriptures, the most commonly cited uh, is uh, Isaiah two four, which for your listeners who uh, you know who are believers and 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 read the Bible, that's the famous passage about uh, turning your plowshares into pruning hooks. Um, and so it's it's a, it's a line that is not necessarily it's not strictly for Jews. You know, it's it's you know it's at the UN, um, but mm-hmm. Isaiah two four is commonly used, and it's it's a line that not just rabbis invoke, but also non Jewish. Uh, chaplains in Congress as well. And one of the things that was interesting too, and you don't, you, you see the buildings all the time, you go through there as a reporter, you're there, um, to talk about Moses in the, on the Supreme Court building and, and the, the, the significance of that. Yeah. So the, I love that question because Moses, 
is a lot of places in Washington, D.C. Um, he's uh, uh, as a lawgiver. He's on the edifice of the Supreme Court um, in Congress itself, uh, in the House of Representatives. There are uh, I believe I think it's 23 um, uh, stone or statuesque portrayals of famous lawgivers um, in, in history. The one. Uh, that's right in the middle, the 23rd, and that over that directly looks at the podium uh, is Moses. Um, so, you know, again, these are statues of lawgivers that are sprinkled on equal sides um, throughout the chamber. The, the 23rd smack dab in the middle, if you are speaking in Congress and you are looking up, you're looking right at a statue of Moses. Uh, wow. And it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. Uh, and it's there, he's there as a lawgiver. It's not a religious um Icon, but there is a is a is a is a you know again a lawgiver and but he is invoked. He's mentioned uh, speakers when Netanyahu spoke in Congress. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Israeli Prime Minister spoke in uh, two thousand fifteen. First thing he said was, "Look up there, there's Moses." Uh, yes. And so again, that's he just felt at home. He felt totally exactly right. <laughs> he felt it all exactly. Well, you know, it's so interesting you say that because one of the the interesting things about this the study is that that Israel, uh, the Knesset, the Israeli Parliament does not open with a prayer. Um, so, wow. yeah, so if you want to, if you're in Israel and you're a rabbi, if you want to pray in a legislative session, you have to come to America to do it. Wow. You can't do it in That's Israel, yeah. Why is that, do you think, Howard? I don't know. I think, uh, my gut, just to come up with a really quick answer, is because I think Israel has, from the beginning, just the whole secularization of, you know, is it a religious state, is it a secular mm-hmm. state? Mm-hmm. And I think they I think they were very careful of not to have too many over religious implications um, when they were setting it up, so they so they don't begin with a prayer. I think just to maintain, you know, that level of, well, I don't want to say church state or synagogue state, uh, you know, for for Israel. And it's so interesting because you work for C-SPAN, which uh, we all adore, and they try to stay down the middle and we try to do the same. But I couldn't help to notice that uh, Joe Biden had a rabbi, I guess, the night before his inauguration. And the rabbi talked about leading the Israelites out of Egypt. And I didn't want to make any connection there about, you know, the transformation of the administration. But I thought that was an interesting passage that he that he touched upon. Well, we thank you for being with us. It's a very fascinating book, and I encourage all our listeners to get it. When Rabbis Bless Congress, just uh, like you said, a pioneering look at that whole uh, chaplain process. So thanks for being with us, Howard. Thank you. This is a lot of fun. Really appreciate it. Thank you. All righty. Take care. All right. Let us bring in our technical producer, the Wizard of Pods, Brad Maybe. How are you, Brad? I'm great. Another uh, great interview, Jer. Yeah, an interesting guy. Interesting guy. I just thought that whole, you know, when I covered Congress, you would see the chaplain's opening. And I I was interested. I mean, he didn't really have to, he didn't really deal with the whole church state issue. But what do you think about that, um, you know, having prayer in in, uh, Congress? You know, it's one of those things I would like to respect. And and if people want to participate, great. Yeah. But uh, for the most part, no, I I don't think it should be there. Yeah, this is just kind of interesting because uh, there are so many faiths, and some of the faiths are not having faith, you know. Yeah. So uh, it's one of the great books I read, and I, I got to remember the author's name. I feel bad, but it was called God. It was just called God. And this author went and he took the history of God, 
um, from the beginning. So he was basically saying, hey, the cave people, they couldn't understand the sun. They couldn't understand the rain. They couldn't understand the wind. So they made <laughs> gods out of them. And then later on, they would be walking by a tree and it would look like a face and they'd start worshiping the tree. And then eventually, like the Greeks came along and they formed gods in the in the image of man. And then, you know, for believers, it, it culminates with Jesus, who is the God and the man. That was like the, the month. But so I'm listening to this book and it was fascinating. And then I'm thinking like, wait a minute, what is this guy? I mean, what is he, you know? <laughs> and uh, at the end, he says he's a pantheist. I'm like, what the heck's a pantheist? Well, a pantheist believes that something started the world, whether it was the Big Bang, God, whatever. And they believe there's just kind of this force and this flow and this spirit that's going along. And your goal is to try to get into that spirit or, or, or you know, kind of get into that wind or whatever it is. But that was a very interesting take. Well, and that's called Panthe? Uh, no, it's called, well, it's called Pantheism, P-A-N-T-H-E-I-S-M. And uh, yeah, but the book was called God, which was, uh, it was a fascinating read. At a very young age, I kind of became agnostic because I I had equated mm -hmm. uh, the belief in God and in the existence of God with that of, of Santa Claus. Mm. And when I was a little kid and I hit that age where I was just like, you know, Santa ain't real. I, I kind of, that carried over to religion. I remember being in church. I'm like, what are we doing? What are we all doing here? Well, you know, a lot of people use God as Santa Claus, you know, yeah, give me this, oh, give, no, me that, that. give me that, I didn't get it. What are you doing to me? You know, I really struggled with faith. Um, I covered no, me too. Katrina. I covered Katrina back in 2005. And uh, just to see that devastation, 1800 people killed, uh, innocent people didn't do anything. And I'm just thinking like, yeah, what kind of God does that? You know, but everybody, you know, everybody has their own thing. Well, do you believe in an all powerful God? Do you believe in a, an all healing God? Do you feel an all just God? So, uh, yeah, it was, and you know, you had the real religious people saying, well, it's sin city and God was striking them now, <laughs> you know, Sam and Gomorrah. Uh, yeah, but, that's uh, terrible. It that, is. It was it like uh, when when the uh, it was an earthquake in Haiti. Uh, the the seven hundred club guy was <laughs> saying all that stuff. Like, well, they're uh, they, like they had they'd signed some deal with the devil three hundred years ago or something like that. It was just, uh, and, and and that's the funny that's the funny thing about religion. I've obviously never been a faithful person throughout my life, but right. I, there are times in my life where it ebbs and flows where I at least try mm -hmm. and be respectful of mm -hmm. religion. Mm -hmm. And, but the older I get, the more staunch I become and it's all fairy tale, make believe, yeah. and we yeah. need to give it up. Yeah, um, I, I get upset when people wield it as a weapon. You know yes, I mean? like you, you'll you'll see you can you can see it on both sides. You'll see Democrats say, you know, the Bible says, and you'll see Republicans, you know, and there was like that old saying about statistics. You know, statistics lie, lie. You know, liars use statistics. Whatever it is, it. You know, it's a big book. You can find a lot of stuff in there to justify your, to justify your position. You know. Yes, it, it is, and 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 it and it makes me angry when people, you know, ye of little faith, wield it as a weapon like that, and and then, but there are times like, and and this is kind of a funny example with uh, Chick Fil A. People were mad at Chick Fil A because they were, I think, not supporting gay marriage. That's right. Or, that's right. Yep. That's right. And. I looked at that as the absolute breath of uh, freedom of religion in this country. And mm -hmm. 
I didn't think that they were doing it because they were wielding the Bible as a weapon and being hypocritical. When you look at Chick-fil-A, they're not open on Sunday. They turn down millions and millions and millions of dollars a year so that they can worship on Sunday. Uh They walk Uh the walk. Yeah. So I've had this conversation with people. You kind of have, if they don't believe in gay things then that yeah. is their religious belief and essentially yeah. what was this country was founded on yeah and that is really something that keeps me up at night when you start well, thinking about crazy I mean, things like yeah. that well howard said it you know i mean people uh there's no one faith i mean there's obviously more maybe this or that but uh, that's the great thing about our country is you're able to do that so let's just say right now everybody stop doing that stop doing that <laughs> thing. so now that's done brad we've got it done it's never right, going to well, happen well, again in our it. country all right. well, we, we solved it right here yes we did yes we did. <laughs> yes we did all right thank you buddy all right i wanted to say thank you to our executive producer mike gugat up in dc and dave our announcer and of course our technical producer brad maybe over in joyzy and uh, our contributing voice town john terzis the voiceover tampa bay and we will be back next week with a thrilling edition of the retail politics podcast until then always remember read beyond the headlines have a great week with the front row award-winning reporter gerard shields takes you into the vanishing world of print news to a time when stories were reported not invented or twisted Imagine you have press credentials in the front row with Shields throughout his decades-long newspaper career covering political corruption, scandal, and heroics during the critical events of our time. With dozens of Amazon five-star reviews, Shields' latest work, The Front Row, is a passionate study of American journalism while delivering his own invaluable life lessons. The Front Row by Gerard Shields. Available now at Amazon.com.